Hey everyone, this is a Godzillion and One podcast where we talk about the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, the world, and the God who made it all. I'm Greg Holder. I'm here with our producer, Tori Nichols. Tori, have you ever just felt like you uh, you could have kept talking to someone for, mm, I don't know, another two or three hours? They're just that smart. They're that good. They're that easy to talk with. Yes. Well, I felt that way listening to you guys today. Yeah. So this is John Tyson that we're talking about. And John is a is an author and, and you've no doubt uh, read some of his books like uh, The Burden is Light, A Creative Minority, Sacred Roots, A Beautiful Resistance. John currently lives in Hell's Kitchen uh, in the, in Manhattan with his wife and his two kids. And John is, is the lead pastor of Church of the City, New York. John is just one of those people that I learn from every time I'm with him, whether it's in person, whether it's me hearing him speak, whether it's, uh, us just hanging out and talking like we did today. But I'm going to go on ahead and say that today, uh, I was writing down all sorts of like resources and quotes and going, okay, I need to go check that out or I need to check that out. Um, I'm hoping you kept track of all of that because th- there was a lot going on. There was. And we'll have all of that information in the show notes because as you're going to be listening, you're, you're going to be trying to take notes furiously too. So just enjoy the conversation. If you miss something, come back to the show notes and we'll have it all there for you guys. And, and can we just say, I I wish like listening to someone like with an Australian accent, it's just, I just, I don't know. It's just seems more interesting. I could, I could listen to him like, like just read the phone book if he wanted to. I don't know if there are <laughs> phone books anymore, but you know what I mean? Uh, yep. And a story that starts off, did you know John was a butcher? That John no. was trained as a butcher? I knew that. I had no idea. I forgot to ask him that, but I love that he worked that in. So here's a guy who grows up, tells you, tells us his really his very interesting story uh and god calls him into ministry and he ends up really just sharing so much with us specifically around this idea of fatherhood Mm -hmm. and the the word that keeps coming up is intentional there's an intentionality to what he is talking about but i'm wondering as as a younger follower of christ what you were hearing from John, as we talked about this, maybe from the other side of some of these things. What, 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 did you hear anything coming through? Yes, in short, yes. Um, so obviously, I have no experience in fatherhood. Um, I have no experience <laughs> in parenthood yet. Um, so just fascinating hearing the two of you guys talk. Um, some of the things that stood out to me was he kept coming back to this idea of how one person can shift the trajectory of their family. It's not about um, what happened to you in the past or things you're currently struggling with. If you commit in your heart and ask God to help you, he'll do it. Um, And he kept coming back to this idea of legacy of what does greatness and legacy really mean? It's very different than what the world categorizes. Um, And it's, it's, it's quieter and more subtle, but it's incarnational. It's, it's mm-hmm. incarnational when he's talking about this is the kind of relationship you want with your kids so that they can come to you with their problems. And I know we'll all hear that, but John really puts it out there in a very specific way. Um, 
I also, what was it? The Dangerous Kids Club? Is that what he did with his kids? The Dangerous Kids Club. Yeah. He started a club with his kids. Yeah. To yeah. kind of create crazy opportunities for them. And the and, initiation was licking a battery. Yeah. Licking a nine volt battery. So um, I'm, I'm not, this is, I'm not saying to try this at home. I'm just saying that John is got such an, an, an a passionate, I think that's the word, a mm-hmm. passionate approach to parenting. And then, and then, and then at the end, even if you're not a parent, when he talks a little bit about this failure of nerve and failure of heart in our world, in these times, whether you're a kid, a parent, or both, um, I think that's worth it there. Um, just just some of what he's talking about. But this is one of those conversations that went by so fast because there was so much he was sharing with us. And we'll, we'll no doubt need to have him back again. But uh, because there's so much there, let's jump in now and, and start listening in on our conversation with John Tyson. So, John, just to just to catch our listeners up, tell us a little bit about your story and your family, because I think context is so important. Um, and they're going to know from the get go that you and I did not grow up in the same neighborhood. So how about if you just talk to us a little bit about your your context? Yeah, well, thanks so much uh, for having me on the podcast, mate. Really appreciate that. And I uh, got a lot of respect for you and what God's done through you mm. and what you care about. So it is a joy to be with you. Mm. Uh, I'm originally from Australia, so I grew up in a place called Adelaide, South Australia. The only thing it is famous for that you might have heard about it from is its wine culture. There's an Adelaide Shiraz, very strong wine. So I was like, you know, sort of near the um, Napa Valley of Australia for some context. Okay. So, okay. Um, yeah, so grew up uh, there, lived there till I was 20, dropped out of high school when I was 16 to work at a meat factory. So I'm I'm a, a fully qualified a butcher by trade, which is weird. That's um, awesome. The, yeah, became a Christian in a Pentecostal youth revival in the Assemblies mm-hmm. of God, speaking in tongues, slain in the spirit, fire, glory, signs, wonders, Toronto blessing. Um, then I went to a John MacArthur cessationist Bible teaching church and then <laughs> came to the U.S. to study theology when I was 20. Um, I've been, so I, I came over, met my wife there in college doing an orientation tour of the campus and remember thinking, gosh, it's going to be a little harder to focus on my studies than I'd anticipated <laughs> in that Georgia heat. And um, yeah, so I've been married. Uh, so yeah, I got married a year later. I've been married uh, 22 years, almost 23 years. Um, I have a son who's named Nathan. He's 21. Um, a daughter named Haley, who's 18. And uh, we've been in New York City the last 16 years, uh, starting churches. I, I pastor a church called Church of the City. URL is church.nyc. And um, that's, that's like, you know, yeah. I'm passionate about jazz music, theology, culture, motorcycles, yeah. the occasional cigar. I mean, just, you know, yeah. middle-aged things, man. Middle-aged yeah, right. things. Right, right. Well, I just wanted to say this in front of everyone that that your voice is so important to so many of us, and I see you as a, I, I see you as a pastor of pastors, John. And I I know that um, you've even been invited into some of those kinds of roles. And I remember just going through the thick of it in COVID, and there were I don't know a dozen of us that would gather on the dreaded Zoom call 
and and, uh-huh. and and we would pray and and at the beginning of each of those you just gave us a word and it was so fresh it was so spot on and i just wanted to i, I don't know if i've ever thanked you for that but but that was a lifeline man that that was that was that was good stuff so thank you for that oh, no um, but when when we're talking about some of the things that you've done i, I would like to if we could maybe zero in on this concept of fatherhood um, I know you have a new book that's coming out uh, soon, and and we'll make sure that folks know how to to get um, a hold of that. But I, I wanted to talk a little bit about, um, like, what kind of relationship did you have with your dad growing up? Again, and you know, thinking about context, speak to that a little bit. Well, I I, I think if you're going to look for a fulcrum or a lever. To move society, you've you've got to touch on fatherhood, yeah. and all the statistical research shows it's it's a justice issue, it's a race issue. Like we have to have dads back in the home. And there's a million forces sabotaging them and working against that that big present. I'm not talking about patriarchy. I'm talking about fatherhood. I'm talking about a an emotionally self aware, loving, sacrificing dad who's in the home with a vision to care for his kids and, and raise them up. So I, I, I care a lot about that. Um, I, I think my father, he had a very, very difficult relationship with my grandfather. My grandfather was a somewhat famous missionary in India. Mm. And he moved to India when he was 18, just a straight-up pioneering spirit. At age 40, my grandfather had a Pentecostal experience where for the rest of his life he could see the spiritual realm. And he was a very weird man to interact with. Um, very godly, um, but old school British missionary. Dump your kids in a boarding school, 51 weeks a year sort of a thing. If you don't, you know, hate your family, you can't be my disciple. So my dad grew up basically with a, a dad who was used by God but was a terrible father. Mm. And my Dad told me, one of the, the stories he told me, just I carried it my whole life. He said when he was little, he developed a sleepwalking problem because he was trying to find his family in his dreams. And they would, they would find him walking around and he was trying to find his parents. What an incredible like metaphor. I mean, yeah. he knew that as a, as a young man. He knew that that's what was, what was going on. Yes. Just wow. longing, longing for home, longing for connection. Oh, my goodness. So my grandfather never gave my father the sex talk, never told him about money, never taught him any sort of cultural values, family values. And um, so, yeah, my dad was aware of that, and my dad did the best he could to, you know, close that gap. But I was a, you know, I was a hard kid to parent. And I don't mean that because I was like chronically rebellious or anything. There were certainly some spots where I was like that. I was hard to understand. I mean, I'm, I'm a four on the Enneagram with a three wing. So I'm really driven, very artistic, pretty sensitive. And I was just like a hard kid to understand. I mean, I was dealing with, you know, nostalgia, longing. What do I do with my sexuality? How do I have a sense of worth and identity? I was getting the crap beaten out of me at work in this butcher shop with a tender heart underneath a rough exterior. I was just, it was hard to make sense of life and find myself as a young man. And my, my dad just, he didn't have a grid 
for a kid like me. Right. He wasn't so, even given the tools to know how to, to, to find you in that. Yeah. And I, I honestly think he, like he, I mean, I think it was probably such a place of deep hurt for him mm. that he didn't have the capacity to probably even lean into his own wounding to find healing and pass it on. So, you know, I, I actually, you know, I was, think, I was just talking with my sister last night, actually, I was like, we didn't, after sixth grade, do a single family vacation, either of us can remember. We spent no time together as a family. And I was like, so I just said last night, like, why do you think that was? And my sister basically said, you know, like, I just don't think they had the tools. Mm-hmm. I don't think they knew how to do it. So as a result, you know, so I, I have a very good relationship with my father today. I think it's very good trying to honor him. He's definitely a man of prayer. He sort of prayed me out of rebellion into the kingdom, prays for me every day. I'm very grateful for that. But, you know, building an emotional connection is very, very tough. So, you know, so I just resolved in my heart, look, man, I got to figure this out. And my, my story is like so many people's stories. I was like, we got to find a way to close those gaps for our own kids. And that's what sort of put the fear of God in me and got me going. Yeah. And, and, and so it's a, you know, the word that comes to my mind when I hear you talk is intentional. You're, you're calling us to an intentionality when it comes to fatherhood. When you make the distinctions between fathering and patriarchy, you're saying we have to, this is an active, ongoing, I'm choosing to enter into this with my children sort of a process. Yeah, I mean, that, so yeah, my next book is called The Intentional Father because it's, it's based on that vision. I basically say at the start of the book is when I sort of look broadly across, across um, the landscape, I see five sort of archetypal fathers. The first one's the irresponsible father, and this is basically a sperm donor, just has a kid and just has nothing to do with the kid, walks out, obsessed with self, refuses to acknowledge I have birthed an image bearer and I'm accountable to raise him. Um, that can happen for a lot of reasons, some of them sort of like self-centered and malicious, some of it profound brokenness. Um, but you get an irresponsible father. Then you get an ignorant father. And this is someone who just doesn't know what to do. They just don't know how to be a dad. And, you know, men typically don't have the wiring to handle like a screaming, crying infant all the time. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that women necessarily do. I'm just saying that men can struggle with that area. So they just tend to not be as nurturing in most cases. So that, and then, you know, you throw this kid and it's just so foreign. You don't have any memories of being a baby. I mean, it's like there's no instincts there. So there can be a lot of ignorance. Then you get inconsistent dads. And these are dads who sort of struggle with their own brokenness or their own ambition. And so they're like, they're in, but they're out. They show up at some stuff, they bail on the rest of it. And it produces like a profound sense of wounding because kids need consistency. And right. so a dad that like without any sort of patterns or understanding or explanation is in and out, that's quite common. Then you get involved dads, and this is like your typical good dad, you know, taking his kid to the game, maybe does a camping trip once a year. He's in the game. But he basically is, yeah, you know, trying to get it right and he's passing on what he knows. But the intentional father, which is what I'm trying to help people be, I guess, ask the question, um, what is, who has God given me 
in my child? And then how do I customize something to help them reach their redemptive potential? And so first of all, so I, I basically talk about a four-step process. Number one is preparation. You've got to deal with your own drama, you know, like whatever is not uh, transformed is transferred, as one scholar says. Uh, then you have an initiation where you want to bring them into it. And then there's the process of formation and then there's sort of like integration or recognition of uh, that person to the community, particularly for young of them. So, yeah, that's like it's, it's intentional about the process, intentional about the development. And my vision is that we'll see a generation of intentional fathers. Yeah. Okay. I love that. And there's so much there that we can talk about. You and I both reference uh, Ed Friedman at different times. Yeah. And so then if you go back one sort of one generation or, or the, the man that mentored him was Murray Bowen. So I'm, I'm going to get nerdy here for a second, but but in some of my background and in studying Murray Bowen and just family systems, I, I, one of the things that he says is a key to a family fundamentally changing has to do with self, what he calls self-differentiation that happens from previous generations. So it's that, it's that capacity to be uh, what he says, you know, an I, you yeah. know, while staying connected to the family. And and I, I'm hearing that in your language, that there is this, I'm going to honor, even what you're saying about your father, I'm going to honor him. But there is a kind of, I'm going to also be who God has created me to be as well. Um, it, it just helps me. I, I can't help but think of that leave and cleave language that we see in scripture. And it just seems yeah. to me like that's what you're speaking to. Yeah, the, the, the idea of different differentiation is something that, I mean, there's no other way to say it. It's saved my life. It certainly saved my leadership. Mm. And, yeah, the ability to exist with, it, with a clear sense of identity, um, a, a solid sense of identity where you are not reliant on other people or a sense of self. So, you know, you have your own values, vision, capacity to stand. And um, therefore, you are free to experience rejection or affirmation you don't take either too seriously yeah i mean I, I think differentiation is seen most clearly in the person of jesus and you want to talk about somebody like broke a new thing open right you know, and created a, a a new family new blessing that was jesus I mean, he wanted to do the father's will he wanted to be where the father was working say what the father was doing that was everything to him and so, yeah, I think that's a, a huge part of it. I, I think definitely in my own journey too. Um, you know, Jung says you become an adult the day you view your parents as parents. Uh, sorry, you view your parents as people, not as parents. And he said there will always be sort of like a, a chronological bias. They've been around longer. They play a role in your story. But when you can evaluate your parents just as people for their strengths and weaknesses and then determine how much of that you consciously want to take on board that was good and what you need to reject. That's a major moment in a parent's life. And I guess I spent a lot of time doing that when I became a parent asking what's good here that we need to carry on and what's broken here. Right. Right. Well, and I'm probably talking out of my own stuff now, but I think the only shot I have as a parent to help in some of these areas is, is I have to have done the hard and honest work in my own life. Yeah, so it totally. becomes a win-win, but as soon as I'm now I'm I'm putting myself in someone else's shoes, and this 
can sound so overwhelming, John. It's like, okay, what I like, I'm like in midstream in my fathering. Now, what do I do? I mean, what, what can you speak to that a little bit? Well, I want to do two things, man. I want to increase the overwhelm and at the same time release the tension. And what I mean by this is, yeah, I mean, this stuff is intense because you're shaping a life. Right. You should, right. You should right. have the fear of God in your heart Amen. on this. Amen. Yeah. You will give an account on this. So, you know, a, a lot of the criticism I, I get from people was like, man, your stuff's too intense. Like, you know, like it's too much work. And I was like, it's my children. <laughs> right. These are right. like part-time employees. This is not a little side thing. This is one of my primary calls on planet Earth. So, of course, it's going to be hard work. And it is very painful to do the very real work of churning through your family drama and those subconscious forces that have shaped you. And look, the, the world is so broken. We need deep people who have gone into the wound and sought healing. And, and so I make no apologies at all for pushing on intensity. On the other side, I think there is tremendous opportunity because um, all of us can start again at any moment. That's the beauty. And I, mean, yes. and I don't say that tritely. Generational breakthrough can happen when one person gets a vision. Uh, whole futures can change in one moment of decision in a father's heart. And it may not look big at first, but with consistency over time, the generations that will be impacted all because one person took a stand. So you actually see this in the Bible too. Oh, yeah. Some people are the son of, and other people have to be the father of because they've got nothing to pass on. And some people have a great inheritance, others need to start now. You know, it's it's one of those things I was telling some folks recently. I I love, and we don't have the whole story, do we, of Perez and 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 just the pain out of which he was born and that very dark story that we see. And yet, his generation is his his future generations are known as courageous men of valor, and they're mentioned that way in the book of Nehemiah. And and he's in the he's in the He's in the family tree of Jesus. And, and you begin to think something must have happened along the way where his identity, he just, he had to have chosen. My identity is not going to be wrapped up in the yeah. way my story began. And I think one thing I want to, I want to say to dads as well is like, you've got to reclaim your agency. Like, look, I, look, I believe I was just going back through my notes. Like I preached on systemic sin and injustice in 2008 at Q. And the whole talk was the future is systems. And everybody pushed back on that. And I was like, no, that's, you know, blah, blah, blah. So my point is I believe in systemic sin. I believe in systemic racism. I believe this stuff's true. But at some point, you must make a decision in your own heart about the legacy you will leave. And it is not fair that everybody is not at the same starting line. But, you know, like after you've genuinely lamented and you're sorry for that, you need to get on with, with legacy building and you need to start wherever you are with all of your heart and just determine within yourself you can shift things in one generation. And so I do want to preach a message of empowerment because, 
in our culture right now, we have a crisis of responsibility. Everything is everybody else's fault. And it may be true that a lot of things are other people's faults, but that's not going to change your son's life. At some point, you're going to have to say, here's the hand we were dealt. And from this place on, it will only be more compelling and rewarding because of the, the, the distance that we've gone. So, yeah, I, I, I want to empower. I want to put the fear of God in dads and I want to empower them. Change is possible that regardless of where they're coming from, what they've been through, beautiful things can happen. So, so the, this, um, you've been very specific in, in how the, some of the unique challenges of raising a son in this era, in these times. Can you speak to that a little bit? Um, I, I know you have a son and a daughter, but I'd like to just talk to you for a second about sons and then maybe turn the corner. Yeah, okay. Well, I mean, gosh, it's, I have, you know, the, people say, like, what do you think of young people today? Some people, you know, they talk about, well, there's addictive technology. Millennials, the big joke was, you know, they're just lazy. Man, I never wanted to make those sorts of statements. You want to know That's why? Right. Because it is confusing and hard to understand who you are in the world. We are not born into the world with a clear sense of identity. That's right. It's confusing. It's very hard to get a, a solid sense of self to know who you are. Often people experimenting and like dressing weird and doing drugs and having sex and listening to music and playing video. These are all just like cries for like, who am I? Somebody help me. And Rollheiser says, you know, one of the challenges of our generation is almost every other generation in history had a clearly defined pathway and moments of initiation. And the goal was to take basically the energy of youth, the, the eros energy quest of life and passion and drive and desire of youth and channel it and initiate it in a path to maturity. And, this is, it's, and sometimes these rituals were very severe, what we would actually describe today as barbaric. And he says, you know, like in all of our chronological arrogance, we can tend to say, how can be those, those uncivilized people? And he says, but look what's happening. We've got a generation that is trying to self-initiate and they're killing themselves and they're cutting themselves and we've got an opioid crisis. And we're dealing with this, all this drama because nobody's telling them what to do with their energy. Nobody's initiating them into adulthood. So I was like, I have to build a pathway to help my son navigate the complexities of, of these adolescent years and build a path into sort of confident and mature adulthood. And, so and this is what you're calling the primal path, right? Yeah. And look, I mean, you know, I'm, you know, I'm more of a scholar than a warrior and a gentleman than a barbarian. So the primal path <laughs> sounds a little sort of like Midwestern beer dad, but you know what? I tell you this. <laughs> <laughs> tell you this, and that's not a, it's not a I'm a high school dropout it's, it's not a shot it's just like I live in like in the middle of New York City it's like there isn't really primal anything but I try to motivate a 13 year old kid that was the number one thing is like how do you get a 13 year old kid to have some measure of interest so I try to make it sort of sound intense by the way before I did this I started a thing uh, when, before I did the primal path called the dangerous kids club and the dangerous kids club was to produce courage in my kids. And so I came up with all these challenges you had to do to be a, a part of my gang. It was the dangerous kids club. 
So to initi- the initiation was licking a nine bolt battery. He didn't do that. He couldn't be in my club. And, <laughs> you know, he had to jump from a moving vehicle. I just like came up with all these things. Yeah. So my kid, my son was psychologically primed. Right. And um, anyway, yeah, so then I just built this thing out that was a combination of formation and breakthrough. So it was like daily discipleship or daily connection and then big breakthrough sort of things. So it's built around five shifts, six roles, the arc of life. There's a bunch of stuff in there that's yeah, obviously yeah. but that was but the passion, man. And, and and it's just so um it's approachable. It's something that somebody can look at and go, okay. This is how I would apply this in my life. I, um, I'm laughing because I have two daughters. I don't have sons, uh, but I, I look back and maybe I'm trying to justify some of the crazy things that I've invited them into, whether it's a shark dive or climbing up a mountain or something. But I, I like to think, this is what I tell myself, that it stretched their capacity for all sorts of things. It certainly stretched their worldview, but I'm hoping that it stretched their even their capacity for anxiety and for uh, fear and for challenge because they're, they're in it, but on the backside of it, they, they weren't destroyed by it. And I'm hoping that's a, that, that that's something that they take then with them because now even young women need to know how to face the challenges of life. So, yeah, so you, you bring up two interesting points. Number one, um, an interesting thing, you know, I do these things that are very simple. They're just called emotional maps. And a lot of times we look for dramatic events, but you'd be amazed at how many dramatic events that are surrounded with like high drama details are not the things we carry in our hearts. Sometimes it's a quiet whisper. Sometimes it's one word spoken that like, you know, produces the level of emotion in our heart. And uh, my guess is like when we go back as dads, I, I tried to like, you know, do the power of moments. I did so many meta things with my kids. But when I ask my kids, like, hey, we spent all this time together, what's the number one things you remember? And here's what they say. They just remember that I was there. Absolutely. They just Absolutely. Remember, like, you know, dad, dad was there. Yeah. And so, but so you make an interest. So that's part one. It's like, you know, you, you, it sounds like you're a dad. You bring in your girls in and they're just going to remember what was your dad like. And you're like, dad was there. That's the greatest thing that could be said. The other thing you're saying, which I think there's some kind of truth to, but it bears an important point. When I sort of showed my wife this, I did like a six-year outline with my son. You can do it in a year, but I was just like, gosh, I've got it for another six years. I might as well try and like enjoy the time. I laid it all out for him. I said, this is my plan to walk made from adolescence into manhood. And my wife is like an alpha apex predator eight on the Enneagram. I mean, she's like, oh, she's a woman in a world of girls. And she said, most of these things are true for women. Like these aren't distinctively male values. These are human values. I said, Mm -hmm. I agree with you, Mm -hmm. but I tell you right now that if you go to a man and you say to him, I'm going to take you on a journey, but don't worry, there's nothing particularly masculine or for boys or or distinctive about men here. These are just lessons for humanity. You will demotivate him. And my my biggest sort of real-time learning is that male formation happens best in private. It's behind closed doors. It's not in front of people because there's something about a man being vulnerable and learning to deal with his shame that just often happens better in the presence of men. And I don't know why that is. I think it's some sort of like deep, innate, yeah, primal sort of reality. But it is true. A lot of the things that you want to appear in a healthy 
man, are things you want to have in a healthy woman. But I think there are differences. But I think the process of being formed um, separately is very important. So if I'm if if you're present as a dad, you're going to create this safe moment, this safe actually, this safe environment where your kids are going to bring you their stuff. Yes. Do, do you, so so then what? So so your son uh, brings you his sin. Uh, then what? You're in this relationship with him, and you're trying to, to, to. Well, just then what? Yeah. So I spent a lot of time trying to help my son understand. Like it was this phrase. He's like, a lot of dads have a, a lot of kids have a thought about their father. That's this. My dad's going to kill me. Oh crap! Mm. Dad's going to mm. kill me. Mm. And I wanted my son to say, "My dad can help." I said, yeah. "Man, if you're if you're in a car and someone gets." and they're drink driving and you get pulled over, the number one thing in your mind needs to be, let me call my dad, he can help with this. You know, you're at a party and things are going wild, you need to think, let me call my dad, he can help me with this. So, yeah, you want to establish that that emotional bond where they feel safe to bring you their sin. Um, There's an imaginal book, uh, a magical book called The Belonging, that was it called, The Culture Code. And uh, they talked about these things called belonging cues. And they said, basically, teams perform well at their best when there is a sense of psychological safety to fail. And they said the best organizations are giving off hundreds of these tiny little things called belonging cues. And these belonging cues create an emotional field and and they're just sending out signals all the time that says you're safe here, you're safe here. And so, you know, you're trying to create that consciously how you react when they screw up, how they react when they, when they struggle with things. You're either going to create shame or you're going to create a sense of belonging. And then yeah, the goal is to help them walk with God. That's right. You know? Yeah, to That's process right. the sin, to learn how to repent, to learn how to maintain an intimacy with Jesus. But so in, that, a, in, a, yeah. in an incarnational way, you are reflecting what it will be like to come to the Father. Yes, that's the goal. It's yeah. hard, but that's the, the absolute goal. Yeah. And I would say to my kids a lot, look, God is a thousand X better than I am. Look at my <laughs> exactly. response. This is my response. Imagine how much better God's response must be. Oh, that's beautiful, John. And, and as soon as you're saying that, it's making me, it's like, I, if I get that right on a good day, when I get that right, it can't be about me in that moment processing my own grief and my own anxiety in front of a child who brings me this because then all of a sudden it i'm asking them to help me instead of me helping them 100% i mean that's the whole point of differentiation who exactly. is the person in front of me what do they need right now and i can chat i can deal with my own feelings and emotions and process those later because it, it is not about me so yeah a lot of parenting is like shame-based, guilt-based, I'm so disappointed in you. But they're not disappointed in you. They're frustrated because they made your kids made you look bad. It's all self-care, self-preservation. So, yeah, I think that's a really important point. It's like loving the kid in front of you based on where they're going. Earl McManus said something to me. This is like before he was famous, like a long time ago. And I think it might have been the first Mosaic conference. Okay. I don't know. I was a youth pastor a long time ago. <laughs> and I said to him, I was having dinner with him, um, but we had some mutual friends. 
And I said, hey, man, you know, I've got really young kids. Do you have any advice on parenting? And he said, yeah, my parenting approach is very, very different. He said, I try and enter into my kids' world and respond at the size that they perceive, that I perceive them to be experiencing. So he said, for example, if my daughter, Mariah, says that someone was mean to me at school today, I don't go, well, I'm sorry, honey. That's, it hurts our feelings when people are mean. He would be like, oh, my goodness. That, what did they say? What did they, oh, my goodness, who else was listening? Did anybody else hear? Oh, my, how did that make you? And he just like enters into the drama. And he said a lot of people are trying to get drag their kids into the adult world. He said but the, you have to enter their world to become the guide to bring them to adulthood. So he just, that was his whole philosophy was like experiencing kids to the, experiencing events to the degree that kids were so he could connect with them and process through it. And that is like what I, I, that, I that stuck with me and that was my yeah. conscious philosophy. Entering in, connecting, deep empathy, and then I had a few golden moments where, particularly as my son was in the junior and senior in high school, he would say, hey, Dad, can, can we just talk for a minute? I'd be, what's up? He would say things like, well, I'm facing this problem at school and I know you probably went through this and do you just have any wisdom for me on how to handle it? And I remember thinking if everything I did, we walked 500 miles across Spain doing the Camino, we did the highest ropes course in the world, we did like a bunch of stuff. And I remember thinking, this most may be the most beautiful moment of my fathering. So my son views me as a credible source to help him navigate the complexities of his adolescence. And I was like, that's, that's all I'm good. Yeah. That's I, I a win, man. Yeah. That is a win. Uh, that's, that's, that's it. And so I, I said, I wanted to kind of turn the corner a little bit and you spoke to this, but, um, I know you're in, I think you're in the process of creating a similar framework for daughters. Yes. Uh, so can you speak to that a little bit? Yeah. So I, again, I try to build, I try to do a combination of sort of 50%. What I would just say is like godly wisdom. But like, that's what I want for my kids. Like I want you to be godly and I want you to be wise. And, um, so, you know, like I try and cultivate love for God and I try and help them navigate reality skillfully. So 50% of it is like generic human wisdom. You know, it's like I'm hacking psychology, sociology, history, sure. life hacks, the whole thing. Right. And then the other 50% is who I think my kids are and what I think they need for their lives. So, for example, my son is a, a four on the Enneagram. He's a very sensitive um, thoughtful, godly young man. So I, I'm trying to listen to him a lot. I'm trying to draw out his heart. I'm not just trying to like push him, you know, like, you know, like kill that, eat that, be, you know, like I'm not trying to right, just push him right, into stereotype. Right. So the, with my daughter, 50%, so it's called 50 pieces of my heart. And it's just basically, here's the 50 things I want my daughter to know from my heart to hers before she leaves my home and becomes a woman. It's coming up now. Just got a couple yeah. of months with her. And so, yeah, half of those are sort of like customers for her and half of those are sort of like, you know, skillful, universal women. So, you know, a lot of study, a lot of theology, and that is basically a one-year journey. And so it's a weekly dinner with a big idea and then, and then daily discussions that reinforce that big idea. I love that. I love that. So let me just take you a little bit further down the road than where you are with your daughter. 
How do you see these dynamics play out with the future husband of your daughter or the future wife of your son? What What is your role in, in that relationship? Uh, I mean, hopefully they, they trust me enough. I mean, you know, my, my, I want to be careful here because it's, it's obviously private and sensitive, but my daughter was dating a particularly young man who like was struggled with insecurity. I had a lot of compassion on this kid. He was a good kid, but he's in a pretty harsh environment. And I remember my daughter just coming with me one morning and just saying, can you please take him through the primal path, Dad? Mm-hmm. Can you just invest in him? Can you just pour some of these principles into him? He's just so indecisive. He's just struggling. And I was like really honored that my, my um, daughter would want me to do that. The yeah, other no thing kidding. is like, I don't think – you know, I mean, I'm, I, I don't quite have the self-awareness at my age to know if I'm still intimidating or not, um, but I certainly have a lot of, like, power in my world. I'm the senior pastor of a large church. If you walk into a room, you know, like, I will have a lot of power in that room. So I'm, I'm not one of those, I'm going to pull out a shotgun and shoot him and all of that. Like, I understand why dads do that. Like, I absolutely do. <laughs> But hopefully I've raised a good enough daughter who's going to bring me home a really great guy yeah. who I can have a friendship yeah. with and That's right. sort of help him because, you know, That's he's right. going to have a tough time being married to my daughter because marriage is hard and I want them to feel, man, look, I've been there. And I'll tell you one, one quick story. I've got a friend who had a massive, you know, he was staying with his in-laws and they were out on a date and he had a massive fight with his wife and she sort of kicked him out of the car and he was walking like eight miles home. And then late at night he's just like walking home and his father-in-law sees him and opens the door up and just says, get in, man. I've been there. We don't oh. even have to talk about it and drives him home. Oh, and I was wow. just like, I love that that's, picture. And that that's analogy. like out of a movie. <laughs> yeah. It's like hopefully – Hopefully, I can have a relationship. Yes, 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 yes. You know, what I, John, I appreciate again just you spending time with us and and sharing your heart. I really just have a couple more questions and then I'd like to just head for home with something we do with everybody. But I wanted to give you a chance to maybe talk a little bit about father's uplift and dads in super challenging settings and just kind of maybe give a little bit of a a plug for that and, and explain that a little bit. Yeah, so I, I um, spend a, a portion of my year basically as a spiritual director for an organization called Praxis. So I basically do spiritual formation for entre- Christian entrepreneurs. Yeah, yeah. It's an amazing organization. They have a for-profit yes. um, accelerator and a non-profit accelerator. Um, I was in the non-profit accelerator, um, you know, just meeting with people, teaching, and um, yeah, I, I came across Father's Uplift and I was listening to the mission and I was talking with the, fa- the founder of it and I was like, oh, gosh, this is someone on the ground doing the work. So Father's Uplift, basically, um, they, they help dads deal with their trauma. A lot of times it's dads coming out of incarceration and looking to either reconnect or establish a relationship um, with their kids. Right. It's, it's dads who are awake and consciously committed to changing the story of their families. And they, they need help. They need tools. They need tools when they come out of prison. They need tools for counseling. They need uh, tools on 
basically how to learn what they were not given by their dad. So, yeah, that was an organization. And I was like, you know, I just I was just moved to tears and I was like, gosh, if I ever figure out how to turn the primal path into something, you know, and if I ever figure out a way to sell it, I'm going to just give 10% of it to these people because I believe they're doing some of the most beautiful work in yeah. this space. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, they've, they've ended up doing uh, really well. Uh, they've been noted by President Obama after the good work they do. And, um, yeah. yeah, you should fathers uplift.org, great organization. Yeah, yeah, good, good. Thanks for that shout out. Um, so, honestly, I, I just wanted to thank you because you're it, what you – what I see you doing is setting up a potential legacy of fa- of health, not perfection, but of health huh. and resilience and flourishing in families. And, and, and I just, I just so, so appreciate that. Um, I, this is sort of a hard left turn, but I want to ask you if you would, because it, it has spoken to so many uh, leaders in recent days that I know of, but will you go back and just give us like the the thumbnail sketch of of a little bit of what you shared at Q this past year and and this idea of Elijah and the voices of Jezebel? Can you just talk to all of us? Because there may be people here who are they're going, man, I'm listening and I'm leaning in. I'm not a parent yet. Man, what you said then was so timely. It was breathtaking. Can I can I put you on the spot to just share a little bit of of that brilliance if you if you could if you can download that gosh i'll, I'll try so the talk at cube was an 18 minute talk that i right, gave right, at right. my church and when i gave it at my church i think it was like 51 minutes there we go now so, i'm just asking you to boil it down to you know 90 seconds so not not hard at all yeah i i was reading a book i think it was um so i read a bunch of friedman stuff i was thinking about differentiation and I had just done a retreat for my staff uh, on how to avoid leadership disaster. Hmm. And so I basically did all of this research with my friend Darren Whitehead. And I was like, okay, here's 12 things to avoid leadership disaster. Here's a pre-mortem. And the, the, one of the first things was like on differentiation. And so it's like the great temptations we have are on failure of nerve, which is we don't have the sense of st- uh, identity and confidence within ourselves to live with the dissonance and rejection of an anxious group or an anxious family. And so in a desire to be accepted because we can't handle the tension, we we collapse back into the anxiety and patterns. And failure of heart is, you know, when, and because some people have, like they literally, they struggle having people be angry at them or rejection. The other one is a failure Hard, which means we have the capacity to do the right thing, but we lose our love. And you can have a lot of behavior and morality, but if it's not love, it can do tremendous yeah. damage. Pharisees were very, very yes. loyal and dutiful, but very, very damaging. Jesus said you make them twice as much the sons as hell of hell that you are. So, yeah, the goal is basically how do you avoid these temptations? And in that, I said there's three temptations for a failure. First one is when the momentum changes and we go from having favor to the world being against us. That's Peter's challenge where, you know, Peter says, if everyone deserts you, I won't. And then a teenager at a fire can talk him out of his apostolic confession because momentum changed. The second one was dominant personalities. That was Elijah. 
where even after he saw the victory, um, where fire came down from heaven and they killed the prophets of Baal, Jezebel says to him, "You're gonna, I'm going to do the same thing to you. And he just is terrified. Right. And he runs away and he, and he loses absolutely, has a failure of nerve and God has to restore him, take a nap and recover and he goes to self-pity and loathing. And, um, you know, I think that's one of the great, greater moments that I talk about how Aaron, in moments of uncertainty, we sort of make up gods to deal with anxiety. Right. And then he made the, uh, obviously, the golden calf. So, yeah, it's just like we've got yeah. to be aware of, like, how momentum impacts us. We've got to be aware of how dominant personalities impact us. We've got to be aware of, like, how we act when we don't know what else to do. And these are moments that require very, very steady leadership. And it's true in a family. It's hard when everything's against you as a family. It's hard when maybe in-laws or parents are, are criticizing your efforts. It's, and it's hard when you don't know what to do next. Like, I don't know, a global pandemic. I mean, it's hard right. to not just capitulate. And so you've got to cultivate that sense, not just of differentiation, but godly differentiation. Yeah. And this is what you see in Jesus. Totally confident in the Father's approval. Jesus was approved at the start of his ministry, not the end. Before he did anything, he was the That's beloved right. son. Therefore, he was free from outcomes and applause. Um, and then, yet, yeah, he had a sense of upward call. He said, you know, my food is to do my father's will. So he, was, he just wanted to please God. He left and trusted all the outcomes up to him. The old one is the cross. He trusts his life. And then, um, yeah, he does, and then he just has faithfulness metrics, which means like, and, and I think this is true. We all sense this. What is greatness in our culture? What is greatness? Like, is it skill? Is it accomplishment? Is it mastery? Well, I think our culture is confused on what greatness is because if you were to ask someone, what is a great dad? It's not going to be how much money dad made. It's not going to be how many degrees dad had. It's not going to be how much respect he had. A great dad is someone who sacrifices for others. That's biblical greatness is sacrifice yeah. for others. And um, Jesus had a vision of greatness, which was his sacrificing his life for the world. And so I want us, you know, so we've got to have that vision of faithfulness. Like I will be a great dad, which means that I may not get the promotion means I may not have as much time to myself. It means I may be tired for decades of my life. But when you hear your kids say, my dad was a great dad, it will all be worth it. That's so, yeah, that's, that to me yeah. is the key right there. That's it. That's just brilliant. Okay. So let's let's shift gears here and, and, and wrap this up. We, we do a little thing called um, a way to go award where we, you know, we just give this, there's really nothing with it. It's not like a, templeton prize or anything like that but but we want to give a shout out to a person an organization an artist that is doing great things in this world and you we've already talked about father's uplift so uh it could be that but but if you were to nominate someone for this way to go award these days who, who would that be you know let me just riff for a couple of minutes yeah in yeah response. so I was in Chicago. My son's at Moody Bible Institute. I was preaching at the chapel there. And um, so I got to hang out with him. And the pastor of Moody Bible Institute has a guy named Mark Job, wonderful guy, former lead pastor of New Life Chicago, 
he was doing multi-site, you know, when everyone was asleep. (laughs) Maybe they have 23 locations. I don't know. But they do these things called new life centers. And new life centers are basically CCDAs, the community associations that basically do holistic kingdom work in some of the harshest, most uh, neglected neighborhoods of Chicago. So they are in a place called Little Village where that police shooting was, uh, you know, where the Latin kings are. It's one of the fastest growing uh, Mexican immigrant uh, neighborhoods in America. So I used to go to uh, Chicago to go to Willow Creek. Willow Creek's big paradigm shifting, large, rich suburban church. And I would walk around that in awe and I would be like, how do we get a screen like that? <laughs> they, have a, they have a food court that baptizing people in fountains. I need to get a fountain. <laughs> and when I was younger, I was impressed by the size and the scale. Now, I love it. God touched a lot of people through Willow Creek. It had a tragic ending. But this time I was in Chicago and Matt, who leads uh, New Life Community Center, was giving me a tour. And he showed me how they built the largest food bank in Chicago that during COVID fed 1.2 million people. It's a little church. And how they have a tutoring program where they take kids from kindergarten into college and how they do sports clubs, they do gang intervention. And I remember just sitting there thinking, oh, my, how America's values of success used to be in my heart in my 20s, size, scale, quality, influence. But now that I've you know, got a little more time under my belt with Jesus, I realize this is true greatness. Yeah, so I'd like to nominate Matt from the New Life Center in the uh. little village in Chicago. And get on their website, see what they're doing. You know, that they don't know this, but when I left that, I just went to my room and wept. And I was yeah. like, God, you, these people are doing the Jesus yes. stuff, the Jesus stuff. Yes. And I wish more people knew about how much Jesus stuff they were doing in Little Village. So, Matt, that's your good. life centers, that's it. That's good. That's good. That's exactly what we're looking for. So, here are some and one questions. If it's a gazillion and one, here are the and ones. One person that has made a lasting impact on your life. Uh, a guy named Jeff uh, Spencer who discipled me and taught me how to study scripture and share my faith. Okay. One thing you're loving these days that we should check out. Now, this can be anything. This can be a book. This can be a, a, a series, uh, you know, on Netflix. This can be uh, music, uh, whatever. Something we should check out that you're just loving these you days. You know, I just so um, they just discovered a little while back a long lost, never before heard John Coltrane album, and I just bought that year that they discovered on vinyls twelve vinyls. Yes. So the complete John Coltrane collection on vinyl. Yes, of course that was your answer. Yes, that's great. Um, What's one way that you're connecting with God these days, John? I'm reading my Bible differently. I'm basically just doing very slow meditative reading. So I have for many, many years done a through the Bible in a year Bible. And I I loved it. It was life-giving. It wasn't legalism. This year I'm just reading tiny sections uh, every day, and it is, I'm just meditating and marinating. I was loving it. That's good. One lesson you wish you could have learned sooner? 
Don't just be kind to people. Just kindness, kindness, kindness. Life is hard. Everybody is dealing with untold wounds, drama, and circumstances we're unaware of, and I just wish I was kinder earlier. What's one trait you had as a kid growing up that you still have today? Drive. (laughs) I mean, I I was a psycho-driven kid. Trend chasing, full immersion in it, and then moving on to the next thing. That's still in me. Yes, it is. (laughs) Okay, last one. What's one way you're moving into this next year with hope? You know, I'm, I'm, I'm 44 years old. I'm in the middle of New York City. Um, I guess I'm at that point in terms of a pastoral career where I, I guess I'm meant to build my thing. And I just have very little desire to do that. I, I'm so hopeful and have so much belief in, in Gen Z. Hmm. I just want to find and equip late teenage, early 20 leaders to lead the future of the church. I'm so hopeful about their passion for Jesus, their awareness of the kingdom, their love for the world. I just, I just want to do whatever I can to sort of send them forward, healthy, whole, and equipped. Amen. Amen. I love it. I love it. Thanks for listening to a Godzillion in One podcast. Subscribe, share this episode with a friend, and head over to gregholder.com for the show notes. And as always, stop and notice this week the shockingly and seemingly endless ways to connect with each other, this world, and the God who made it all. We'll see you next time.